Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. I don't always know how each week's show is going to come together since the world and top stories are constantly shifting. So this week's show surprised me a bit because it's just so sweet from start to finish, filled with nothing but joy and positive thoughts. I hope it leaves you smiling as it has me. So here's what's coming up. Theatre took a blow during the pandemic, but who better to tackle the challenges than a creative crew? Lori Stephen is an award-winning director, playwright, dramaturge, and founding artistic director of Odyssey Theatre, who joins me to share how her theatre group has embraced the growing genre of audio dramas with The Other Path, a unique collection of modern folklore that tackles today's big issues on your favourite podcast provider. We are all starved for some kindness, so I'm delighted to have my dear friend Erica M. join me to discuss the Undercover Kindness Project from the Ontario Caregivers Organization that she has partnered with to help spread comfort and joy to unsuspecting caregivers who desperately could use our support. Anne Brody is here with entertainment, and this week she shares what she feels will be an Oscar contender with Colin Farrell, Brenda Gleeson, and Barry Keegan for their gut-wrenching performances in The Banshees of Innershin, South Korea's official Oscar selection for international feature film Decision to Leave, and Margaret Brown's stunning documentary Descendant, now on Netflix. Choosing to be compassionate over cynical is hard in a world that keeps throwing us curveballs, but it's the only way through. Lise Wilcox joins me to share her three top tips for helping others while maintaining your sanity in a topsy-turvy world. Added bonus, Lise's voice is like butter, and if nothing else will soothe your soul just listening to her. We've talked a lot about midlife lately on this show, so today I offer up someone who is walking the talk. Leslie Crew wrote her first book at 50 and since then has published 14 books. She joins me to share more on this amazing life pivot and details on her new book, Nosy Parker. Finally, writing a book is a lot of work. Now imagine also creating an online world and soundtrack where fans can fully immerse themselves in your fictional world. That's exactly what my final guest, Sienna Tristan, has done with her husband, Avi Silver, in The Heretic's Guide to Homecoming, a labor of love that is less plot, more vibes, built over a decade. It's another full week at what she said with interviews that empower, educate, and entertain. So let's jump in right now on 105.9 The Region. The more things change, the more they stay the same is one of my mother's favorite expressions and is so perfect to set the stage literally for my first interview today as the old-time 
radio serial of old comes full circle in an exciting new podcast format. The Other Path is a new podcast of five haunting, magical, and sometimes darkly comic audio dramas that will entertain, enrich, and empower you. Laurie Stephen is an award-winning director, playwright, dramaturge, and the founding artistic director of Odyssey Theatre, Ottawa's premier professional summer theatre, who joins me today to discuss The Other Path. Welcome to the show, Laurie. Hi, Candice. I'm so excited about this. I'm a big lover of theater, and um, I can only imagine how the pandemic must have thrown your community for quite a loop. I mean, it shut down theaters completely and put artists out of work. And artists are amongst the lowest uh, paid people in society. So uh, that's when I decided I had to do something, and we turned digital. And this is just so exciting to have this because people love to um, to listen to podcasts, obviously, but because this is theater, it's it's so entertaining and it doesn't have all of the heavy subjects we sometimes hear in podcasts. It's complete fiction, which is so wonderful right now. Well, I was I'm really a, a fan of folk tales, and I'm inspired by them. And they're age-old tales that actually we carry around inside us. You know, we all kind of look for the magic solution or want the power to stand up to our demons. And um, what's exciting is when you unearth them and find out what they really say to us today. And so what you can do with a folktale is you can give people a way to step out of their everyday life and experience pockets of magic and mythical beings in the world we live in today, and then come back with new ideas. All of the playwrights actually were writing about hot issues that they are passionate about. But because it's in a mythical world, you get to listen to it, enjoy it, and you choose what you want to take out of that and come back with. So obviously this idea was born out of the pandemic. Now, how did you bring it to life? What was sort of the first stage for you of, of, of I guess, beginning this journey? Well, actually it was born before the pandemic in a way. Oh, excellent. It was, it was born when um, I had a goddaughter living with me who introduced me to the digital world and she's 20. And she was introducing me to web series and podcasts and vlogs. And I went, wow, this is really exciting. And this is where theater needs to go. We need to be doing live theater, but we need to have a digital component with it. And I started having a fantasy about what could happen. But there was no time, no money. And that was that. And then when the pandemic came along and shut theaters down, put artists out of work, I thought, okay, this is the time. So they'd all, the ideas had already been fermenting. We immediately took everything online from auditions to workshops to readings. Uh, and then I said, okay, now's the time to do the podcast series. And I imagined it would be a kind of six month project, <laughs> but it turned out to be way more than that. And I guess the first uh, step really was reaching out to writers. Um, well, the first step actually was coming up with an idea for the podcast series, what it would be about and what impact it would have on, on listeners and on audiences. Um, because I really wanted us to keep connecting with people 
out in the community during that time. So the first was a conceptual period. And that's when I went, okay, if we're going to do this, we're going to do something I'm really excited about. And that is folktales. And uh, I'm going to work with, you know, it's a, you start with a pipe dream. <laughs> um, it was all very nice in those days. Oh, yes, I'm going to work with writers from across the country. And I'm going to work with, um, you, it kind of, in a way, the pandemic opened creative doors. Because I started thinking, once I got online, it, boundaries disappeared. I started thinking, I can work with writers across the country. And that led there's no logic for this, but that led to me thinking, I can work with not only dramatists, but folklorists and fantasy fiction authors. And there could be a kind of synergy of all these people working together and we can reach out not just to Ottawa audiences, but to audiences across the country and abroad. So that's where it started, just daydreaming in a way, and then reaching out to writers. Are all of these tales then original scripts? They all are. I, I asked writers, um, there are five writers in our first season, and I said, I want you to be inspired by a folktale from somewhere in the world, but I want you to write a contemporary play um, and set it in the contemporary world and speak about something you find important to you through that. And, um, and uh, they, that's what they all did. They were, they were inspired by an original tale. But they have created original plays based on that that deviate significantly from the tale. And they all touch on things that are very um, prominent in our society right now. Uh, poverty, cultural division, sexual harassment. Are these uh, plays, are they meant to, you know, the old times radio serials, they were serials. One would lead into the other. You would pick up where the story left off. Do these do that or do they stand alone? They're all standalone. They're an anthology of, and I, I, I know that it's quite common to do serials, but I wanted each of the writers to have the liberty to bring their own voice and their own interpretation of the task to their play. Now, I, I had the opportunity to listen to a clip of one of the, uh, the plays. Is that, now, is that what you call it? Do you call it a play or a podcast? What are you, how are you defining this? We go back and forth between audio drama, audio play, play, and podcast theory. <laughs> we mix them all up. Um, anything will work. So anything you want to call it. Um, <laughs> um, I, I, I love this. Where do you feel... This will go next. What's your what's your sort of grand vision for the other path? Well, if you'd asked me six months into the project, um, I would have said, ah, that's the end. <laughs> but once I started to see the light at the end of the tunnel and could feel these pieces coming together in a way that was exciting for me and for the artist, I started to work already on season two. Another round of uh, plays, there were writers I wanted to work with the, with the company that weren't able to do it, but would like to do it. And there are some writers that have worked with us on this project that would like to come back and do it. So season two is in the works. I'm curious how many people work on one podcast, because in the clip that I was listening to, there was, you know, 
The sound is incredible. There is a lot of um, sound effects that are drawn in as well. Uh, so in addition to the writers and the voice actors and sound effects and producing, and is, is there a director? Uh, so how many people in each podcast? I'm the series creator and the director. But for the whole series, there were over 40 professionals involved. Um, uh, our sound designer, Damien Kearns, was involved in all of them, but each of them had a different music designer because sound and music are so important. There were 15 actors that played more than 50 roles in, in these five, five pieces, um, uh, an ensemble. And then there were lots of people helping with other dimensions of the work. So over 40. I think this is such a lovely form of escapism. I'm just so excited about it. I want people to be able to find it. I think it's perfect for our coming cold winter months to curl up with a blanket and listen to these stories. Uh, where can people find The Other Path? Well, we have a website called The Other Path, theotherpath.ca. And we're also on, and you can also listen to it on any platform that you normally listen to podcasts on Apple, Amazon, Google. The works where we are on your favorite podcast platform as well you can follow us on social media the other path podcast incredible i just i just can't express enough how much i love this whole concept Lori. it's just great so thank you so much for joining me today and i hope people go find the other path and give it a listen thank you with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. You just more than anything right now, we could all use a little more kindness in our lives. Thankfully, my friend Erica M. knows exactly how to do that and has partnered with the Ontario Caregiver Organization for the Undercover Kindness Project, where they'll show family caregivers some much-needed kindness, but without them knowing about it. It's just what we all need right now to restore our faith in humanity. Welcome to the show, Erica. Thanks so much, Candice. And it just speaks so much to your desire for kindness that you saw this on my Facebook page and you were like, come on my show, come oh, talk about this. I am, I mean, I am not alone in this. I know I'm not. I am starved to see acts of kindness and moments of tenderness and compassion. The world is just off the rails. <laughs> yeah. And you know, you're not alone because I posted this on my social channels and it has gone semi-viral. And this this is not like a huge initiative. This is like a grassroots um, sort of from the heart initiative where the Ontario Caregivers Organization wants to bring attention to the plight of caregivers. We all know, you don't realize it, but we all know someone who's a caregiver, someone who is caring for perhaps a child with a chronic illness or a teenager with mental challenges. I experienced that firsthand, um, or a child who's ill, a spouse who is sick with either mental or physical illness, 
a girlfriend, a friend who you're caring for, and of course, aging parents. This is, I mean, especially at our age, Candace, as moms of teenagers, we see it everywhere, especially in the sandwich generation. And it's a very lonely experience. It's um, challenging uh, financially. It sucks your emotional energy. It's awfully, often very physically demanding. And you don't want to complain because we, we usually do it because love and duty. And, but there's no one caring for the caregivers. And so that's what we're trying to do is just talk about it. And so thank you for having me on your show because I get to remind people that you don't need a, something like the Undercover Project uh, undercover kindness project to do something nice and surprising for someone who is a caregiver, you know, like buying them a coffee or saying, Hey, why don't you go out for a run or go to the gym or whatever? And I will dot, 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 fill in the blanks. You know, there's, it's just easy. It's not like, you know, renewing their homes for them <laughs> or anything big. It's just little small gestures of kindness that say, I see you. I know that it's really hard. How can I help? We all saw during the pandemic how isolating it was for all of us, but for care caregivers in particular, the pandemic was very isolating. What prompted you to get involved in this? Was it seeing the experiences of people through the pandemic or was it your own personal experience? It was my personal experience. Um, as you know, my mom passed away three years ago, and when she was diagnosed with cancer three years before that, she swore my sister and I to secrecy. And my sister and I um, lovingly took care of her. We were her main caregivers. She certainly had other help as the disease progressed, but my sister and I were the team. And I was happy to do it, obviously, because I totally love my mom. And, you know, interestingly how, interesting how that brought us so much closer together. At the same time, my daughter was going through some really um, difficult emotional experiences at that time, um, teenager. And so I would spend a day at the hospital with my mom, and then I'd come home and my daughter would be in a puddle on the floor saying, Mom, you need to take me to the hospital now. And that was a lot. I never told anybody about it, partly because I swore my mom to secrecy and also I didn't want to embarrass my daughter. And so my close friends kind of gathered around because they knew, but really it was a huge struggle. And I talked about it at a dinner party, Candace, craziest thing, um, about six months ago. And one of the, the people at the dinner party called me up and said, you know, I'm, I'm working on some sort of initiative to bring awareness to the challenges and the isolation of being a caregiver. And would you like to be involved? And I was like, goosebumps, yes. And so I was part of the very small team that helped you know, sort of dream up this concept. I certainly was not the main person. I just sort of shared my two cents. And lo and behold, I'm also the spokesperson for this and I, I couldn't be prouder. And I am shocked at the incredible response. Like, it's not like, oh, Erica, that's great. 
I mean, I'm talking thousands of people viewing it on my LinkedIn. I put it up yesterday. Thousands of people, sh people sharing it, commenting, how can I help? I'm like, this is not what I expected. And I think it just goes to show that how starved we all are for this return to kindness and compassion in our society, which is so sorely missing. Uh, I think with the holidays coming up, this is also very timely and a good reminder for people to know that this is also a very lonely time of year for caregivers uh, as we head into the holidays. So throw them up to the top of your to-do list and, and get out there and help them. And I want people to obviously become involved with this. So where can they go, Erica? So if you know a caregiver who can use a little boost of undercover kindness, you can go to undercoverkindness.ca and you could tell us a bit about the caregiver and their situation and what you think would be a great act of kindness that would uh, make them happy. And then we're going to try and accommodate as many people as we can. And we haven't figured out exactly how we're going to do it because the response has been so great, but we're going to do something. Amazing. Well, I am, I am always proud to know you, but I am particularly proud to know you and that you're involved in this project. It, uh, it warms my heart. Erica, thanks so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Joining me now for Saturday Night at the Movies is Anne Brody. And this week we're starting with a, well, actually I should say what Anne is saying is going to be a multi-Oscar award winner. Tell me about it, Anne. Oh, my word. The Banshees of Inna Sharon is uh, from Ireland and it stars Colin Farrell, Brendan Gleeson, and Barry Keegan in a, in a supporting role. The film, the actors, the director, definitely going to be nominated. This is the most incredible story um, set in a very small, isolated town out in the islands off the coast of um, Ireland. Um, it's tight because very few influences come in, and they're all dependent on one another. And there's best friends. Farrell is Pat Patrick, or Padrick, and, and Gleason is Colm. Well, one day, Colm just refuses to engage with Patrick for no reason. Uh, and it's shocking because when your best friend doesn't respond to you and tells you to get lost and gives no reason it's rather stunning and in a small town like this where everything is that happens at the pub and it's public everyone knows and it it puts a knife to the heart of the community so but colin keeps trying and keeps trying and uh, then um uh colm says look leave me alone or every time you bother me i'm going to cut off one of my fingers seems extreme <laughs> Anyway, so Colin persists, and one by one, it's just the most stunning story. The performances and the way the film is made, it's outstanding. Um, the struggle between the two men, you know, which overwhelms the community, is, is a story about will and, um, and, and loss of love. You know, it's, it's a very meaningful film. And Barry Keegan plays uh, one of the villagers with sort of a low IQ, and he tries to bring them together. Anyway, it's a great one. Yeah, it, it looks really good. I do love the actors in it as well. Um, so I, I'm looking forward to that one. Uh, where is that in theaters, Anne? 
Yes, it is. Okay, perfect. Uh, Tell me about decision to leave. Oh, wow. This is a real brain teaser. And it's South Korea's uh, Oscar nominee um, about a woman who is being investigated after her husband mysteriously falls off a a rocky cliff. Now, he's an experienced climber. So, um, and the detective who is investigating uh, the widow um, falls under her spell. She's very beautiful, very manipulative. And they begin an affair and he tells her, yeah, he's a detective. And he tells her, throw your phone in the ocean, get rid of any evidence. He still doesn't know whether she did it or not. And she's certainly not saying. So uh, cut to several years later, they run into each other once again. And he meets her new husband. A couple weeks later, he's dead under mysterious circumstances. But this dance, this dance of... I don't know, toxic attraction keeps carrying on and carrying on. And honestly, one of the all-time great endings. That's intriguing. No. Okay. And that, sorry, that is in theaters or TVOD? That's in select theaters, including uh, Tiff Bell Lightbox in Toronto. Um, so check your listings. And then it will open wide later, the closer we get to the Oscars. Excellent. So uh, yeah, I guess we are getting all the Oscar contenders now right we're at that time of year for that oh yeah okay um descendant looks interesting heartbreaking all of that all of that now barack obama quest love and um other well-known names are behind this documentary about the raising of the slave ship the clotilda back in 2019 it had been missing for a hundred and what 40 years i think yeah 140 years So in 1806, the American slave trade was banned, but this landowner and slave trader in 1860, Thomas Mahan, decided that he would uh, send a ship over to Africa, bring back slaves, and not get caught. And he made a bet, and he was successful. He he brought over these slaves, crammed it hundred into like a like a small boat and uh, left them there. Eventually, the, the slaves founded a town called Africaville, and this is right at Mobile, Alabama. And the man who um, had the bet, his family is still there, still very important in business. Uh, and so there was such discrimination against the descendants of the slaves who, who desperately wanted to find out who they were, where they came from. There was no information. So they required the ship to be found to get evidence first of the crime committed and two, hopefully DNA to find out something about their past in Africa. It's just the most breathtaking, heartbreaking thing you could imagine. Uh, it's no spoiler to say they found the ship in 2019. And there's a, there's a moment in the documentary where there's a rendering uh, of how it looked when the slaves were under the, underneath and the men were on the top, like a, a drawing a cut through the ship. And all the white people in attendance start clapping and cheering. And all the black people in attendance, the descendants, are weeping. And that was in 2019. It's just unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah, it it, it is... Shocking, yeah. to say the least, um, that we're still um, having these hard conversations. Uh, you would think things would be so much better. Uh, 
All right, we have, we, we're actually out of time, but I do want to take two seconds just to focus on another documentary that is very powerful. You've told me about this privately, and that is Brainwashed. Brainwashed Sex Camera Power is about the male gaze in film. There have been books written about it and uh, a lot of discussion. Um, it's a way of shooting women in film that completely objectifies them. Uh, and you'll be, you'll be shown the ways uh, through camera angles, lighting, movement, all of that, and the way the women are there for their bodies. Uh, and they interview a number of female directors. Who, and it's in play today. There's a film coming out called Find Her, which is all about the male gaze. It's a detective novel from the uh, film from the South. But Brainwashed, um, which was made by two Disney heirs, is just the most stunning wake-up call. And you won't be able to watch a film without catching the male gaze. You'll, you'll be warned and you'll know and you'll, you'll see the intention of the filmmaker. Yeah, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Uh, yeah. All right, and uh, you've got these and a whole lot more over on whatshesaidtalk.com, and we will see you next week. More with Candace Sampson and What She Said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Life is hard right now. There is simply no denying it. And every day we wake up, there seems to be more fuel thrown on the fire. How then do we navigate it all and keep our sanity intact? My next guest can help. Lise Wilcox is a passionate speaker, dynamic thought leader, NLP practitioner, top podcast host, cancer survivor, solo parent of three, and taco enthusiast, who knows intimately that every relationship we have in business, life, and love is built on the foundation of the relationship we have with ourselves. So today, we're going to chat about how we can choose compassion over cynicism. Welcome to the show, Lise. Oh, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. When we first started talking, I said to you, I really want to address this topic because it feels hard not to be hardened mm -hmm. by what's going on. And I think we all benefit by staying softer. I agree with you. I completely agree with you. And the reality is that while there's so much happening in the world around us, we still have the reality of being a human and having a very human experience. So now we're trying to navigate all of this stuff all the transitions, all the normal human experiences and emotions that go with it in our inner world while trying to figure out and understand, piece together the, the wild rodeo that's happening in our external world. So what's your advice then for people who are, you know, feeling beat down by hmm. the current state of things? So to most people, <laughs> you mean well, like pretty much everybody, everybody who's dealing that right now. I mean, this is such a big topic. And I've 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 put together like my top three fun facts that people can take away from this and really embody that as their own. So one would be your step one, let's say, is to really and truly acknowledge that this is hard. Like, let's be super real with ourselves. 
this is hard. When we can actually label that for ourselves and admit that we are going through some pretty challenging stuff, what we can do is take ownership of that hardship. And in doing so, we remove the shame. So we don't feel, you know, we can feel guilt or sadness or fear or anger, whatever, but we don't have to have all of those emotions as well as this intensity of shame pushing it down for like, oh, I shouldn't feel this way. Everybody has it so much harder than I do. We can just own it that this is how we're feeling and how we're feeling is challenged by this. And I feel like that actually is kind of two-sided, like for the person to name it and then recognize it, but for the person who's perhaps listening to have compassion when listening and to not think, oh, you think you have a bad, I have it so much worse. We, we tend to do that and we tend to say, well, your problem's not so big, so you don't have a right to complain. Yes. And I think that's wrong. I think we need to allow people the space to vent and recognize that it's a struggle for them too. It may not be as hard, but it's still a struggle. It's, it's all relative, right? Our joy is relative and our pain is relative as well. And so if it really holds that much meaning for one person, then yes, we want to hold compassionate space for that. Another one of the points that I want to mention, though, is that um, we have to set boundaries. <laughs> this sounds so weird right after that, but it's true. We have to set boundaries with our compassion. Because so many people are maxed out that part of this acknowledgement is really acknowledging that we only have so much capacity to hold space for others and for ourselves. So, you know, I a friend of mine was saying how she got together with some of her friends over the weekend for a bonfire and how she was not having a great time because she turns into everybody's therapist. And I would really like to, you know, tack on there in this conversation about setting loving, healthy, and compassionate boundaries for yourself and others. Your friend is not your therapist. Your friend is not your coach. Everybody is going through their own experience right now. And yes, we can support each other in a mutually supportive way without finding that friend who's so great at listening and so great at supporting and then just piling it all on her. <laughs> I'm I'm thinking of my best friend currently as I was going through my divorce, <laughs> who I would call daily and just dump a whole bunch of stuff on her. And and I now realize that was totally unfair of me. Uh, <laughs> but you know, um, but you know, when you're in that moment, I think we often don't know where to turn, which I think is why the practice of this when we're our heads are on straight is so important because mm -hmm. when things go off the rails you can fall back on these skills you've developed, this resiliency you've built up, right? Yes, and, and we can even frame those conversations by, you know, if you're going through a divorce, you're going through something difficult, calling or texting your friend and being like, I am having a really hard time. Are you available? Like, do you have the bandwidth to take this on? And as that receiver, that compassionate friend, it's completely fine and actually very supportive to say, I see you and I stand with you and I don't have the capacity to be a supportive friend in this way right now. I can bring you dinner. I can do whatever else, but I actually don't have it in me to listen right now. There are therapists and life coaches for a reason. <laughs> we are professionals. We have endless space to hold in that professional capacity. Take advantage of those resources versus taking advantage of your friend's uh, <laughs> love for you. Let's say it that way. <laughs> 
if my best friend is listening right now, I do love you and I'm sorry. Um, let's. Uh, I just want to actually about that because one of the things that I learned through this whole process, again, life is a journey and you learn these fun things, was that when people come to me, and oftentimes it's my daughters and they will come and they need to vent. The one thing I ask them is, do you want me to listen or do you want me to help you solve the problem? Bingo. And 99% of the time they'll say, we just want you to listen. And so I have learned to shut my mouth, listen to what they're saying, and then and then not offering comments, you know, just offering um, empathy, compassion, uh, you know, and not trying to fix it for them. Uh, that's been very helpful in me. Uh, it helps me establish the boundary and it helps them establish the boundary. Yes. And it's so often we have all this stuff that's happening inside of us and we just need a place to put it. Right. And so being able to express that, that like, I just need you to sit and listen and and take this, but I don't need anything, any solutions, any advice, any actions. I just need you to sit and listen. That's so valuable to also be able to be that person who says, wow, that sounds really difficult. <laughs> you know, you're absolved of trying, especially with your family. Oh, my God. And your daughters, especially. But trying to, you know put an action plan into place as to how we're going to make this better starting 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. Yeah, I love it. All right. Okay. I want to get to this third point because I feel people are waiting for this third point now. <laughs> so the third point is the decision to consciously choose to make this easier for yourself. You know, this is, this is mindset work 101. And it's one that I think gets glossed over when we're really in the thick of it. There's only so much you have control over. And really that thing you have control over is how you respond and react. So if that means you turn off the news, for the love of God, turn off the news and protect your emotional and mental health. If it means taking a complete break from social media, I promise you, you will not miss anything. And probably nobody will miss you. Just get off of it and put up your blinders. Do whatever it is you can within your, you know, three foot radius of control to take ownership and agency of the things that bring you joy, bring you peace, that, that bring you ease instead of bringing you stress, anxiety, hardship, and this codependent need to overgive or overparticipate. I just, I can't, I can't, I have to keep saying this because I feel like it's like, you know, that act of protecting yourself like that is selfless, yeah. not selfish. And it's self-loving. Yeah. And it, it makes you a better partner, a better parent, a better friend, a better human. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And it's, you know, I run a mastermind group and one of the things we've been talking about recently is what can you say no to? Like, what else can you say no to that actually creates the, the space to say yes to things that you really love? And sometimes, you know, in this really simple but very concrete example, it might be I'm getting off of TikTok and Instagram today so that I can go for a walk with my dog or, you know, go to the park or I don't know, have an iced cappuccino outside and just make that space my own without being inundated by these messages and this energy and the toxicity from anyone else. That absolutely starts to like neutralize or level you out inside, which kind of fills you up, that allows you to be more present in the things that matter most to you instead of kicking into this with so many highly achieving, highly accomplished, driven intellectual women do instead of shifting into toxic overfunctioning. 
you know, let me take this on, let me take this on, let me do, let me give, let me perform, let me worry, let me carry that for you and worry about it on your behalf. It's too much and it's causing massive amounts of overwhelm, anxiety, and frankly, adrenal fatigue and burnout. You are preaching to the choir, sister. I'm telling you, people are listening to this and they can absolutely relate. I also have to say on a completely off note, there's just something about listening to your voice that is so calming. I think you need to like just make audio tapes of just you just talking. I published two books during the pandemic and I recorded them as audiobooks. And like, I think you're going to love the content of the books, but who cares? It's just me talking for like 10 hours. So if you have that, I get so much that like, Oh, your voice just puts me to sleep. It's like then what's in the book. Just get a great meditation in my book. I love it. But I do want people to be able to connect with you, Lise, and follow along because you do share great information. So where can people do that? I am on Instagram healthily and balanced <laughs> pretty much every day at Lise Wilcox. And my website is LiseWilcox.ca or sorry, dot com. So L-E-I-S-S-E. W-I-L-C-O-X.com. Amazing. We're going to put all of that in the liner notes when this goes out on podcast. And Lisa, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. a lot of conversations lately on what she said about midlife and what we're capable of achieving over 50. More than anything, I love backing up the talk with an example of The Walk. My next guest wrote her first novel at 50 and has since published 14 books in the past 17 years. If you do the math on that, it adds up to awesome. Leslie Crew joins me now from her home in my happy place, Cape Breton, to discuss her life pivot and her latest book, Nosy Parker, available now in bookstores everywhere. Welcome to the show, Leslie. Oh, thank you very much. Lovely to be here. It's so great to have you here. Um, and I love that you didn't write your first book until 50. Tell mm -hmm. me about what spurred that for you. Well, um, I've always loved words and uh, reading and whatnot and always wrote diaries and things like that. But it wasn't until um, I was trying to figure out something that had happened in our life. We lost a little boy and uh, I couldn't quite get my head around why that had happened. And I needed to put it down for myself. And um, so that's what spurred me on to write my first novel. I had no intention of ever publishing it. It was just something for me. Um, I do find that you sort of can heal yourself if you put your heart out on the page and look at it from afar. And so that's what I did. And, uh, but I, hard to believe, but I enjoyed the experience. I mean, I cried through most of it, but then, um, but I enjoyed th that experience and I thought, oh, I think I could probably do this again. Um, and again, just for myself, no intention of ever publishing any of this, um, and that's how it started. It was just something I needed to do for myself. Um, and yeah, and I'm glad that it happened that way because really at the age of 50, you've lived long enough <laughs> to gather enough experiences around yourself that if you are going to write a story, you have a lot to um, fall back on. When you first started writing that first book, were you writing it thinking it would be published? It was just for myself. I just went downstairs. Uh, there was uh, teenagers upstairs making a racket. I went downstairs in my old uh, fuzzy bathrobe and slippers nearly froze to death. And I would just write for hours. And 
I didn't even know what I was writing or what it was. And then finally, it, it was just, it was just there. It just came and it was there. And uh, I, I, my sister encouraged me to, you know, send it to a publisher. And I said, I have no intention of going through that nonsense. Uh, I'm a very impatient person. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so I didn't want to do anything with it. So, and I left it there for quite a while. Fine. And so I know there's a lot of women listening who have a book inside of them just waiting to get out, myself included. Right. Um, and so when you were writing, did you did you lean on other writers? What what was your resource for writing this book? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> I have done nothing uh, properly. I've never been in a writing group. I've never read uh, writing books. I've only ever uh, relied on my own instincts. And, um, and when you do it for yourself, you don't put that pressure like I have no expectations. I didn't worry about whether this was a good story, a bad story. It was just my story. And uh, when you do that, it frees yourself up. If, if you're writing like no one is ever going to read it, that's what you should do. That's what helped me um, because then I told the truth. And I didn't worry about what, it, that, what an audience would think. I didn't worry about what readers would think. I didn't worry about what critics would think. This was just something I needed to do for myself. And I realize now, after 17 years, every time I write, I'm writing for myself. I'm writing. I, I've, eventually, all of my stories have added up to, I'll never have to write a memoir. All you have to do is read all my books. My life is right there. Anytime I want to keep someone with me, they're in my books. And it's been a very um, handy way of keeping my uh, loved ones who I've lost uh, or just you know, with me uh, all the time. So it's, it's quite cool. <laughs> it's, uh, that's actually excellent advice. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure people are just, you know, hanging on every word here because <laughs> it's a big project to go ahead and write a book. And I think what holds people back is that fear of what others may think. Yes. Um, before we go, we don't have a lot of time. Can you tell me about Nosy Parker? Nosy Parker is a sweetie pie. Um, I wanted to dedicate a book to my dad. He was the writer in the family. And whenever I think of him, I think of Montreal. I was born in Montreal and brought up there. And uh, the neighborhood of NBG was the place that I knew I wanted to put this story. I was 12 in 1967. And this book takes place in 1967. And Audrey Parker is 12. And she's very nosy. And she, she actually wants to know about her mother. She doesn't have a mother. She has an older father. And she's quite curious about everybody else's mother. She's moved into a new neighborhood and she meets all these women um, who surround her. And that's what I remember. I remember the diversity of living in that neighborhood and how wonderful it was. The Jewish mothers, the Greek mothers, the Italian mothers. It was just wonderful. So this is just a, a, a year in the life of a young girl who's trying to figure out who she is, where she belongs. And, uh, and the dad in the story is my dad. <laughs> I just, again, I wanted to put him in there. He was the writer. He never knew I wrote uh, books. He died before that happened. So um, I, I'm very happy to have him live inside my words. That, that's lovely. And it, it's, it's perfect. Uh, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. I want people to be able to keep up with you, find all of your books, uh, and, you know, perhaps give, gift this book to somebody. The holidays are coming. It sounds like a perfect gift to give somebody. So where can they do the, all that? Uh, well, they can do that at my website, uh, lesliecrew.com, L-E-S-L-E-Y-C-R-E-W-E.com. <laughs> -E uh, and you can click on any of the book titles and uh, it'll take you right to wherever you want to go, whether it's Nimbus Publishing or Amazon Chapters, Indigo, 
the whole nine yards. And they're very easy to to find. So if you're interested, and I've got a story for everybody. <laughs> Incredible. Leslie, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. You're an inspiration. Oh, thank you very much. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. My next guest and her partner have taken the art of world building to a new level. First, they created a planet called the Shale, which has its own history and languages. In this imaginary world, you can become well-versed in the culture and lore of the Shale before you even read the storybooks set on this planet. And to top it all off, this world even has a soundtrack. Talk about an immersive experience. One part fantasy travelogue, one part emotional underworld journey, The Heretic's Guide to Home coming is a sumptuous, slow-burning story about stories and the way they shape our lives. The stories directly take on the topics of queerness, neurodivergence, and disability. Co-author Sienna Tristan joins me now to discuss. Welcome to the show, Sienna. Hi, Candice. It's a pleasure to be here. I was blown away by this uh, whole concept. I can't even imagine what a huge undertaking this is. What prompted you to begin writing about this imaginary place, the shale. So shale is the product of about a decade of work at this point. And I think uh, the first thing that started in was uh, my own neurodivergent sense of uh, what a waste it is, uh, just from my own personal opinion, to build a beautiful, luscious fantasy world for, say, two or three books, you know, a trilogy, and then throw it all away and begin a new one. And for some people, that works really well. You know, they want to start from scratch. They want new baselines new kind of rules of physics to play with. But for me, I thought, what if instead we just build something that is so layered and nuanced and complex and has so much room for breathing and contradiction that you can just keep adding to it? You know, you can just keep layering and keep adding conversations and have everything talk to itself uh, in the way that a real world does. Uh, And that's kind of where Shale as a planet and as a project started. Yeah. Now, did your partner join you at the very beginning of this? Or or is this something that you know, uh, he jumped into along the way. Avi was, I would say, there, my husband, uh, was there for when Shale kind of became serious. So it had been sort of like an idea in my head as like a teenager for quite some time. Uh, And I had other friends that we sort of noodled around with. Um, But once I said, you know, I actually want to make this into not just a hobby, but a a career move and a profession and something I take very seriously, uh, it is at this point that, uh, that Avi coincidentally, uh, showed up and said that, uh, that he really wanted to uh, be part of the ride. Okay, so this is, uh, now we should note here that the, the second part of this story came out uh, just today, as we're talking, actually, uh, has just, just come out. Uh, it's a two-part uh, series. Now, you say that this is no plot, just vibes. No plot, just vibes is like a line that emerged in 2022 that I feel like has described the whole duology, which has taken nine years to write. Um, so The Heretic's Guide to Homecoming is the name of the duology. We have book one, Theory, and book two, Practice. And uh, the first one came out in 2018 uh, and has gained this very dedicated, earnest little cult following 
Uh, and book two, uh, as you mentioned, just came out uh, in this past week. And uh, we're celebrating. We celebrated in Ottawa. We're celebrating in Toronto soon. And uh, everyone seems really excited about it. You know, have you always been this creative your entire life? Uh, you know, building these imaginary... <laughs> My parents... My parents would tell you yes, and uh, I guess this is part of the interesting thing about Shale as a project being multimedia as well. You mentioned at the top of the interview that we have uh, we have a soundtrack, we have a theme song. Uh, there's a bunch of illustrations that are floating around the website and uh, our social media channels, which are original art that uh, I illustrated. I'm also an illustrator. Um, we have personality quizzes on the website that kind of tie into different parts of the cultures of the world that you can interact with in a sort of experiential way. But no, I, I think it's fun to be able to sort of cross-pollinate different ways of, of art making uh, and storytelling, for sure. It gives them an extra sort of, you know, texture. And I think it's important to note that you say that at its heart, both books are about learning to love yourself and to fall back in love with the world, um, yeah. even, even our real one. <laughs> Uh, the shale. Especially our real one. Right. No, this is one thing that I think, you know, speculative fiction, science fiction, fantasy, even horror, like these sort of uh, genres uh, do so well is they allow us to uh, recontextualize issues and traumas and all kinds of suffering that we face in our flesh and blood world uh, in a way that's digestible. Um, and so you can sit with it in a way that doesn't wound you, um, but maybe actually helps you to learn something or to manage something. And that's absolutely what Heretic's Guide is about. It's about anxiety and depression and self-confidence, you know, and, and building it through community and through tenderness, uh, even and especially when the world is not kind to you. You know, that's also important that it's not all sunshine and rainbows. It's There's some tough stuff, but how do we face that sort of worthily. That's very much what the duology is about. Well, I am guessing, because I've spoken to many authors on the show, that you're not stopping here. What's next? <laughs> I'm absolutely not stopping here. I am going to stop for like three months. I'm going to go face first into a pile of blankets, hibernate, and then emerge. Um, so Avi and I are actually going to be co-writing a novel, which is something we've never done before. We're very excited about it. We're going to be co-writing uh, like a queer romance novel, um, which is kind of still in the very early stages, but it's going to be that kind of like two perspective characters. We each take one chapter. It's going to be a blast. You know, it's going to take all the best parts of our marriage and all the weirdest parts too, probably, and and find some interesting way to put them in. And then uh, we'll also be working a little bit more on the multimedia aspect of Shale. So, you know, more quizzes, more art. I'm excited to finally get back to drawing now that I'm done editing, you know. <laughs> so uh, all, all good things, all good things over the horizon. Amazing. Well, I want to know more. So please let me know when that happens. In the meantime, where can people find The Heretic's Guide to Homecoming? You can order The Heretic's Guide to Homecoming, book one theory or book two practice at your local indie bookstore. We love indie bookstores. We care and support our indie bookstores. In Toronto, I would recommend Another Story, Queen Books, Baca Phoenix, uh, which is the oldest sci-fi fantasy bookstore in Canada. Um, but no matter where you are, there's definitely a small bookshop that wants to, you know, uh, have your, your patronage and your company. Um, and also, if you're an ebook reader, uh, it's available online uh, through all of your regular ebook retailers. So you can get it there as well. All right. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining me today, Sienna. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. That's it for What She Said this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. You can also catch me on TikTok at Candace Said. 
Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to catch past episodes and extended podcasts. I'll be back next week with another What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.